This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Allison Galen. Allison is the Edgar and Seamus award-winning author of 12 books and many short stories, a USA Today and international bestseller. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about her latest novel, Robert B. Parker's Bad Influence. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Allison. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. Happy to have you here, Allison. And I'll uh, begin with my my standard question, which is, where does your story as an author begin? Well, um, it begins, my first published book came out in 2005, but my story as an author uh, starts way before that. Um, I always wanted to write. Um, I didn't get very much encouragement from my high school English teacher who told me that I, when I asked why I didn't get an A, she said she only gives A's to people who um, are will one day write professionally. So that depressed me enough that I went and studied theater in college <laughs> and then later um, got my master's in journalism. So after that, though, I still, the fiction bug was still in me. I've always been a huge reader. I've always just loved to write, to tell a story, particularly a crime story. So uh, I was in a workshop in New York City with a wonderful author, Abigail Thomas, who was writing it. And uh, I uh, uh, basically wrote um, a short story that she thought I could turn into a novel. And there was a murder in the short story, so it became a murder novel. And I. Sent it out. Uh, I I think my husband's cousin worked for an agent. He sent it out to a bunch of places. I got a lot of really wonderful rejection letters. <laughs> and um, so, and they all kind of said the same thing, which was that the characters were there, but the plot really wasn't. And I, you know, you got to agree with that. You got to appreciate the constructive criticism that you can get. So, um, you know, about five years went by. I wrote this, the, I rewrote the story from page one really tried to read a lot of mysteries. I'd probably read over a hundred mysteries um, before really tackling it. And then I uh, did a very um, huge page one rewrite. Uh, five years later, I got an agent that wasn't related to anybody that I know and uh, <laughs> who remains my agent to this day. And she sold my first book, which was Hide Your Eyes. And that came out in 2005. And it got nominated for an Edgar. Um, and I've been you know, working, writing crap fiction ever since. So I have to just take a trip back in time here. What was your high school English teacher's name? Mrs. Moses. So. Mrs. Moses. Yeah, Mrs. so Moses. big shout out to her. 
Did you ever send her a copy of Hide Your Eyes? No, I didn't. I really didn't keep in touch with her. I actually, I had some wonderful high school teachers, including um, my very favorite high school teacher who wound up coming to um, one of my signings for my books. I grew up in Southern California and I was out there and um, he surprised me. Um, and he was actually encouraging about my writing. He thought I could, you know, possibly one day write professionally. <laughs> so, so I did keep in touch with him. <laughs> Yeah, I still think we need to stick it to Mrs. Moses. I mean, I think we need to we need to teach her a lesson somehow. I hope she has seen the error of her ways. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, I had a friend who became an anesthesiologist. I don't think somebody would have told her in high school that she could have been a professional anesthesiologist. So, you know, people grow. They improve, especially as writers. There you go. Well, it is it is a skill that takes muscle, right? So it's like like any other kind of muscle, like working out. It takes repetition and and feedback. And, you know, you only get better at writing by by doing two things, writing and reading more. Yes, um, absolutely. Absolutely. And what writing is one of the few things that I believe gets better as you get older, um, in, unless you're, you know, just preternaturally genius wonderkin. Um, you uh, experience and age it really, it just improves your writing um, and just you become more objective as you get older too. You become more willing to edit yourself. So uh, yes, I do believe it is like a muscle that you just have to keep working. And then there's there's life experience too. You know, yes. having different experiences, living you know living longer, but but just just kind of being out in the world more also impacts your writing. I mean, do you think you could have written that book when you know you were fifteen, twenty years younger? Um, the first book that I wrote. The first book, yeah. No, absolutely not. And I don't think I could have written, you know, the books that I've written recently when I was first writing, when I was first publishing, you know, um, I think I've always liked to write about things that scare me. And as I've gotten older, different things have scared me. <laughs> and I think more real things scare me now than they used to. So my first books were sort of like, you know, they were like Hyde Rise was a uh, a serial killer book, you know, and th those were kind of big then. And and I and that was scary. I'm like really trying to scare myself. Um, you know, I I had a book called If I Die Tonight that came out in 2018. And I said that was the scariest book I'd written because it was about raising teenagers. <laughs> and that's what I've done. Uh, and, you know, now my now my daughter's 22. So, um, you know, different things. I, I feel like more of real life has found its way into my writing, even though I still write these, you know, pretty bonkers crime stories um, at their core. They deal with things that that I've experienced, whether it's grief or, you know, loss or, you know, fear of loss or, you know, things like that that become a lot more real as you get older. So uh, I so th the topics have have. Uh, hit a little more close to home. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, the, I, I believe that stories, the right stories come, come to us at the right time, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, yes. and, um, but just being able to tap into your own experiences, like, like you mentioned, you know, raising teenagers. And now mm -hmm. I, I have, I have three kids who are in their early twenties myself. Mm -hmm. um, we have triplets and I find the themes that I write about or think about are a lot different than they used to be. But because you can tap into that, 
I think readers pick up on it and then, you know, you're, you're tapping into some kind of empathy and that's why they can relate to maybe hopefully, right. They can relate to what it is we're writing beyond just the maybe whodunit aspect of it. Absolutely. I mean, that's to me, this is why this, the whole AI thing really bothers me a lot because I'm like, why would you use this type of potentially great technology on something like that, which is we write to communicate to other people. We write to express real feelings that we have in the hopes that somebody else out there will read it and relate to it and understand it. And it's been going on since cave painting. It's been going on for the, since the beginning of time. This ability, this human desire to communicate and be communicated to. So the idea that you would just get a machine to do that rather than, say, curing my sciatica um, is ridiculous to me. I, I, I don't understand it. I don't understand that at all. I mean, to me, a good story hinges on something that you can relate to, a feeling, um, an emotion at its core um, that you as a human being can relate to with the human being that, that created the story. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think machines can be as curious as like a human mind. And I think curiosity is really what starts a good story. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's the author's curiosity into something that other people might think of being very mundane. But, yes. you know, you, you follow your nose a little bit, um, you know, like Columbo as a detective, right? You follow your nose <laughs> and your instincts, your intuition. And are you a Columbo fan? Is that why you're smiling or? Well, my I, my dad was the biggest Columbo fan, and I oh, really? used to watch it with him when I was a kid. And yeah, it's like it's just brings back a lot of memories. But he loved Columbo so much. And in fact, um, when I was I don't know, I was probably like ten, and I was with my parents, and you know, we were at this place called Nate Nows, which was a, a deli in Beverly Hills, and Peter Falk came in, and my dad, you know. You know, it's pretty serious. He not a guy who was so starstruck very often, but he was starstruck, and he made me go over and get uh, his autograph. He was a very nice man, <laughs> but Columbo was my father's all-time favorite show. So he, Peter Falk, grew up in Austin, New York, and oh, really? um, yeah, he his his parents like everyone thought he was Italian because he's you know Columbo, but he was <laughs> of Jewish immigrants, and um, they owned a grocery store called Falk's you know, general store or something in Austining. My friend Joe uh, grew up in Austining. His mother was off the boat Italian and Peter Falk used to deliver their groceries. Oh my um, gosh. And he, he, he told me that Peter Falk was the reason why my friend's mother learned English because she only spoke Italian and he encouraged her to to learn English. I just... Funny how the, the how small the world can be sometimes, but that's so yes, exactly. We both it's like six degrees of Peter Falk. But... Yeah, that's right, that's right. Well, you actually got to see him in person. This is all hearsay for me. I mean, my, my friend could be lying through his teeth to me, but uh, I suspect he's not. Could I? No, that's true too. But that'd be that'd be an odd. I'm not. That, it would just be an odd thing to lie about, right? It like would, it Peter was Falk just... in a in a restaurant. In a restaurant, and I got his autograph, and he was nice. That's kind of a pretty mundane story for a yeah. crime writer to come up with. <laughs> That's right. Where, where do you suppose your your fascination with crime came from? I mean, you mentioned you you were like really into writing crime stories. Like, what? Where did that come from? I think it's always the desire to kind of um, scare myself. You know, I, I when um I'm an only child, um I've always loved sort of just when you're an only child, 
um, you find different ways to sort of entertain yourself. So I was always kind of writing scary stories when I was little, just for myself, just to sort of entertain myself. Um, and I got interested in true crime really early on because I, when I was 10, same around the same time I met Peter Falk, uh, my parents just sort of let me read whatever book was around the house. They didn't really pay much attention to what I was reading. And so I found a copy of Helter Skelter and I read it and uh, it was just, I thought it was about the Beatles. So I was like, oh, you know, the Beatles, that, that will be fun. And it wasn't. Well, it was, but, you know, not in a way that you would expect. And um, it was so fascinating to me. Like, it was so um, scary and so, like, open, like, looking and picking up a rock and looking underneath that rock. And I've always found, you know, sort of crime stories or um, true crime, but really crime stories that are structured well. They're kind of a wonderful escape because they sort of make sense out of a senseless world. Like there's an ending. There's a reason for things, even if it's an unhappy ending. And I've written some very unhappy endings myself. There's a reason. And in real life, you know, the things that we're frightened of as far as crime goes, there's very rarely a reason. A lot of times people don't meet justice and, you know, it's a it's kind of a chaotic world. So, so. So writing crime stories or reading crime stories is a way to sort of impose order where there usually isn't. Yeah, it's kind of a way I of hope making that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, t- totally. Like just kind of making sense out of something that can be completely senseless. Yes, exactly. There you go. Um, well, let's talk about your latest release, um, which is Robert uh, D. Parker's Bad. Um, I just had it up here, and I just bad influence. Sorry, bad jeez, influence. I'm. Uh, the coffee has not kicked in yet, but uh, <laughs> I know what, I'm still drinking mine. <laughs> what, what can you share with us about the book? Well, it's um, it's my very first Robert B. Parker book. And um, Robert B. Parker is a, an amazing writer that I've always loved and has been, you know, um, one of the writers that I sort of read when I wanted to kind of learn how to write crime fiction. Um, and uh, he passed away in 2010, and there have been authors taking over his books. His most famous books, of course, were the Spencer books, um, which Ace Atkins was writing until recently. And now um, Mike Lupica, who was writing the Sonny Randall books, which is what I'm, uh, what I, what Bad Influences, took over the Spencer books. So this opportunity arose. Uh, my agent contacted me and said, would you be interested in trying out to write uh, a Robert B. Parker, Sonny Randall book? Sonny Randall is his only female character. Um, he writes West. He wrote Westerns. Westerns. He wrote um, the Spencer books. And he also wrote Jesse Stone books, um, which were what? Jesse Stone was a cop and uh, Spencer is a private eye. Sonny Randall is a private eye and his only female character. Uh, so I get to be the first woman writing this female character created by a man. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, and so when I had the chance to try out for this, which I was really excited about, immediately this story just kind of came to me involving Instagram influencers. Don't ask why, but it does kind of make sense in a way. Um, the character of Sunny Randall was created in 1999, um, and uh, actually the inspiration for her was Helen Hunt, who was a friend of Robert Parker's, and, you know, there was a potential to make a, a TV series with her in it as this character. Um, and she was, I think she was probably in her early 30s then, the character. 
And uh, he wrote his last Sunny book in like 2007, but then Mike Luke book took over and uh, I don't know, around 2018, he wrote like a few, several more. And um, I think she's aged about five years within the last, you know, whatever, 23 years. So um, so she's in her late 30s now. Right. But there's never been any mention of social media in any of these books, even the later books. And it, her demographic is the second largest demographic to have social media. And she has a lot of reasons to have social media. She's she's single. You would think she would try a dating app from time to time. She has a really cute dog. I would be making TikTok videos of that dog if I were her. Uh, and I just, it kind of struck me. I'm like, why isn't she involved in social media? It kind of makes her the ultimate sort of lone detective. So I had her come head to head with this whole world that she hasn't really been a part of. And she meets these two um, influencers, Blake James and Elena jade and uh and their manager bethany rose you'll notice nobody has a last name um but those are their names and blake is has a stalker so she's kind of hired to find to be a bodyguard and also find out the identity of this stalker and as she gets to know them she you know finds that they are really different people than than she might have thought they were um in more ways than one and uh, and uncovers a mystery that's a lot bigger than anything she um, initially thought she was signing up for. What's it What's it like taking over a, a character that's already been developed? Um, you know, where where you you know, I, I imagine you write all of your own characters in, in your uh, you know first books. What's it like taking over someone who's who who's been dreamt of uh, by somebody else? Well, it's interesting because the characters in um, all of Parker's characters, but I, I really think in the Sunny series, are these wonderful, fully developed characters. So to me, I keep saying it's like being handled, handed a uh, a wonderful a box full of like really expensive, wonderful tools and told to make a table with it. So it's um, these they're already fleshed out, they're developed, they're created, they're interesting, they're funny. The books are really, really funny. Um, and it is a challenge to try to capture the style. Um, his style, of course, is different than mine because um, he was a different person. Um, but um, I did my best to try and capture the style. I know that some of myself is going to get into it. Um, you know, it's going to seep its way in. And it is different being a woman writing this woman character. You know, she, it's just it, just the way it's going to be. Um, but so it's challenging in a way of, you know, I, I know I, I can't possibly please every Parker fan, but to try to capture the essence of Parker. It's challenging in that way, but it's a little bit less intimidating because I've already been handed all of this wonderful stuff, this wonderful setting, these wonderful characters, this full, richly developed life that Sonny Randall already has. These great friends, this great ex-husband, this amazing dog. As I mentioned, I love the dog. Um, so, uh, so it's been a challenge, but it's also been just so much fun. Yeah. It sounds like, did you have to, you mentioned the word try out for this. Did you like audition to, to have to, to, yes. to be able to, to do this? Yes, they had me, um, the estate and the publishing company, I, I wrote, um, or I think it was given to the agent for the estate, I wrote 20 pages. They just said write 20 pages. It wasn't, they didn't have any story in mind or anything. So I wrote these pages. And then probably like uh, 
a month later or so, I heard that I'd gotten the job. So um, it wasn't like a bunch of different steps to go through, um, but uh, I was really thrilled to have gotten it. I don't, I don't know necessarily whether there are a lot of legacy writing or characters that I would feel, you know, comfortable or well suited for, but but this character I really, really like. Yeah, it sounds like it, and and she's got a dog, so that's uh, that's a plus. She has a great dog, Rosie. Yeah. <laughs> I know somebody was reading, I, you know, one of my earlier books and there's a dog in the book. And actually this person was my mother. Um, <laughs> so I, I wasn't really taking her feedback all that seriously. However, the, one thing she kept coming back to was nothing better happened to that dog. Like she could have cared less if like the murderer <laughs> had gotten a human being. Yeah. Don't let it happen to the dog. Is Yes, totally. I'm totally with her. And I've been asked, like, what's the one thing? What won't you do in your books ever? And I, I've always said kill a dog. You know, I've had, I mean, I don't go, I don't have graphic murders in my book because that to me isn't scary. It's more the idea of the loss, the, you know, the idea of it happening. But I've had all sorts of wonderful people and, you know, children, everything I've had, I've dealt with that's but i've never killed a dog can't do it (laughs) no way can't kill the dog no people stop reading right away yes exactly (laughs) why would you want to do that what what does that prove (laughs) well one of the ways i like to get to know my guests a little bit more is through pop culture so i am curious allison when you were growing up besides columbo what were some (laughs) of your favorite things to watch on tv Oh, that's interesting. Um, probably the love boat when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> I'm know, smiling I because that wanted is to go on a cruise and I never went. We never went on a cruise, but it made cruises look so good. And you'd see like, you know, 12 year olds like meeting their a boyfriend or a girlfriend on the cruise. And that was fun. And then there was like Julie, the cruise director. And I thought she was really cool. <laughs> Julie McCoy. So I watched that. I watched Three's Company when I was a kid. and Sure. No, I wanted to go to the Regal Beetle. <laughs> I, I there was a, a restaurant on, in Chatham in Cape Cod where we would vacation, and it was called Pates, and it, it has since been re-updated or it has since been updated. But back in the day, we used to call it the Regal Beagle because <laughs> I mean you would expect to see Jack, Janet, Larry, and the Ropers, and maybe Chrissy or Terry, depending on what year it was. Right. Um, I clearly know way too much about the Reese Company, but um, it, that 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 was it. I mean, they had this little lounge area, very dark, like red leather. It was um, I, I love that place. I love yeah. that place. You know, I really wanted to go. You know, yeah. I was, you know, we were kids at the time, but yeah, I don't think there was ever a place in real life that was as great, cool as the as the Regal Eagle. Yeah, or, or maybe Isaac's Bar in the Love Boat. I mean, yeah. Um, he was a great, he seemed like a great bartender too. I bet he had a good heavy pour. <laughs> oh, nice, nice heavy pour. Nice yeah. heavy pour. Uh, played, of course, by Ted Lang. Uh, yes. Underrated, underrated actor. I know way too much about Love Boat too. So <laughs> if, if we talk you about it more. too much about Love Boat, really. I used to play Love Boat as kids. Like me and my, my brother, our friends, like Jimmy was Doc Bricker. I was Gopher. My friend Mario was Captain Stubings because God forbid he wasn't like the lead in anything uh and then my friend christine was julie mccoy oh yeah everybody wanted to be all the girls of course wanted to be well you only had two choices it was julie or vicky i mean that was pretty much it and who wanted to be vicky vicky was just kind of a she's a little kid and she didn't 
get to do anything. Right. But <laughs> Julie, I mean, Julie liked to party. I mean, yeah, definitely. Did a yeah. Great job. I know. Right. <laughs> I, I, and to this day, I've never been on a cruise, but. Oh, I've been on one once. And, you know, but it was, you know, as an adult, and it was fun. They're just more crowded than they look on the, on the, mm. and then, you know, you know, there, there were never any incidents where there was like a, a spreading disease on the lump boat or anything. Yeah. Like That's that. right. Yeah. You're back you didn't get like dysentery or uh, <laughs> whatever, norovirus. Yeah, no, but there's no dysentery episode of the lump boats. So. Oh, no. Oh, no. You know what? We could, if we, if love boat ever comes back, uh, I say write a spec spec script about, you know, a virus that goes around the love boat. Yeah, but they get trapped out at sea for a really long time. Or, that's right. You know. And that's when love is put to the test. Yeah. You know? That's the when it's fall in love at the beginning, wind up just like wanting to murder each other. Well, now now you've got a murder story on your hands. There you go. Death on the, the high seas. Ultimate locked door. <laughs> what about boat. what about music? What did you like listening to growing up? Oh, wow. Well, you know, it's funny, like when, so, I don't know, when I was a kid, you know, um, when I was really, when I was very young, you know, we, uh, we had a little group of friends and we were late for our time because it was like, you know, way after their, their breakup or several years after their breakup. But we, um, we were all Beatles fans, you know, we all had like our fame. We had a little club, you know, that we were, we all loved them. And then, you know, then, then of course, then I would, li you know, listen to the top 40 for a while and stuff. But then when I was in high school, I decided, you know, I was too, too cool for that. So, um, but I loved like the Ramones and I loved, um, the B-52s and, um, you know, I had kind of like, what else did I listen to? Oh, I listened to Bruce Springsteen. I love the, the, I discovered him through the river, but then I very quickly discovered his earlier stuff, which I loved. So I was kind of a, a little eclectic, but I just didn't want to, I grew up in Southern California. I could not stand the Eagles and that's what people listen to. I hated them. And so I, I just didn't want to listen to what everybody else was listening to. So I was always, by the time I was in high school, I was trying to look for other things that were kind of different. The Clash. I love The Clash. I remember. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't hear many people say that they don't like the Eagles. This is, oh, I hated this them. is really. They played them constantly when, we, when I was growing up. I mean, I think that's probably part of it. So it probably just brought to mind all kinds of awful memories or something. You know, I think it's it's probably a, maybe a subjective thing. I know people I know love the Eagles, love them. But when there was that scene in The Big Lebowski, remember when he's like, oh, man, don't play the Eagles. And he gets kicked out of the cab. And I was like, I am him. I am actually the dude in that scene because, you know, you I, I spent years of being the only lone Eagles disliker in all of Southern California. <laughs> sipping, on, sipping on a white Russian, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the dude abides. Um, <laughs> how about... Um, uh, reading. Uh, do you have a favorite place where you like to read? Uh, well, let's see. That's a good question. I mean, all right. When I read on a plane, I can read an entire book on a plane ride. It probably is my favorite place to be because I don't like flying. And the one thing that can get me lost, like I even watching a movie, I'm like, what's that turbulence? What's going on? But a book I can get lost in. So um, I think you know, the most concentrated reading time I do 
you know, or or love to do is on planes. But of course, I read everywhere, really. You know, anytime um, I read, I read in bed. But, you know, if it's I don't love reading in bed because I don't love falling asleep while I'm reading and having having to go back. Um, but, yeah, you know, I'll read in the in the sunroom, you know, whatever, just just depending. But I think that as far as like really escaping to a book, nothing beats airplane reading, in my there, opinion. There you go. Yeah, I agree. Except when when the turbulence does hit, I tend to sometimes throw the book down and grab the armrest. On, yes, on me too. Me too. And then I get mad. I'm like, I was getting to a really good part, and now I have to panic. You know, right. if I don't panic, the plane will go down. So that's it's right. Really important for me to panic. <laughs> Fair enough. How about writing? Where's a favorite place to write? Well, I have an office space um, that you're kind of looking at in my in my home, you know, and that's that's where I usually end up writing. Uh, I used to have I, you know, I live up in, you know, the Hudson Valley and I used to have like a I used to work in a magazine in the city and I have like a two hour, three hour commute by train. So I would do a lot of writing on the train, um, which was nice. You know, Amtrak, it's great. You can be online there, too. That's that's two uh, hours, two, three hours each way. Yes. Well, actually, I was like, no, 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 I'm wrong. It was a, one and a half hours each way. So it was three hours total. Um, but yeah, so I, I used to do that. But right now, it's it's pretty much I do have a laptop. So I take it with me. And uh, especially if I'm on deadline, any chance I'll get, you know, to just go into a cafe or, you know, sit down somewhere, I'll take it. But I, I think my preferable place is just at home in my office. Sure. And then if uh, I, I'd like to call this my letter to me question or dear younger me, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, if you could go back in time and whisper some words of advice to your younger self, maybe it's the the person in Mrs. Moses's class. That's what the... I was going to say. Don't listen to Mrs. <laughs> Moses. <laughs> break, break, break all of her commandments. Exactly. Um, so what what would you tell your younger self? Oh, you know, I'll tell you what I would say is I was always in such a hurry to sort of move on to the next phase of my life when I was young. I just couldn't wait to go to college. And then when I was in college and graduation, I loved college. But then when graduation happened, I couldn't wait to get not just a job, but a good job. I thought I needed to have a good job, you know. And then it was like, nah, I got to go to graduate school and then I've got to put the graduate. I, I always was very just sort of like i need to move on and i would tell myself take some time rest you know take a vacation get a job that doesn't have to be a great job just make some money and spend time with friends and you know go go travel do enjoy the part of your life when you don't have so much responsibility you know when it's not that important what you do or 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 who you're you're with just just have a little fun so that's what i would have told myself not in college i had a lot of fun in college <laughs> but just them just the whole you know stop stop worrying that you're going to be a failure at 2022 or whatever <laughs> it's, it's such good advice we put so much pressure on ourselves to yeah oh, to exactly. achieve and to to have to have it all so soon um, I even felt myself and I, I feel the same exact way. Like, I, I wish I could tell my younger self the same thing because I was always in a rush to get out of school, get a good job, get that graduate degree, you know, yes. get a better job. And it's like I took no time to myself at all. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'd so to, much rather just have those memories of just, you know, 
that sort of life rather than, you know, just having just relaxing and, you know, or not even relaxing, just having like a, a job or like waiting tables or whatever and and just try and taking the time to figure out what it is I really want to do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it's I found myself like when I was raising our kids, it was like I was always like pushing them to get to the next stage of life, too. Like because we, we had three at once. So like life was just hectic. But it was like they all went to college at the did they go to the same college or did no, they no, no. We have two at one school and one at another. But even like when they were younger, it's like, okay, I can't wait for you to crawl and I can't wait for you to walk and I can't oh, wait yeah. for you to talk and I can't wait for you to this and I can't wait for you to go to school. And then you blink your eyes and then they're moving into a dorm. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I remember there was like so much pressure when my I just have the one one daughter and she just graduated from college. And this is what I try to tell. She graduated from NYU film school going right into a writer's strike. So I'm like, this is the great opportunity to just work on a script, relax, work on your script, relax, get a job, waiting tables, you know, to, to make your rent, whatever. But don't pressure yourself that much, you know. But anyway, yes, um, that when they when she was little and, you know, there was always this like, oh, um, that that kid's walking and my kid's not walking yet. And it's like she's not going to be, you know, 12 years old and not and still crawling. You know, I mean, she's not she's going to be toilet trained by the time she's, you know. 25. So it's not a lot of that playground pressure and um, and. In competition, wasn't there? You know, yep. sort of. Oh, is there. You know, she needs to be the the top of her pre kindergarten class. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of really ridiculous. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, this has been a fun conversation, Allison. I will remind people that the book is Robert B. Parker's Bad Influence. I imagine it can be purchased wherever books are sold. That's right. There you go. And Allison, if people want to get in touch with you and maybe follow you on social media as an influencer, good or bad, <laughs> uh, where can people find more about you? Well, I'm on Instagram um, as Allison.Galen. Um, so I have a first and a last name. And you're like, <laughs> unlike the people in my book. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Allison. Oh, uh, sorry. X at Allison Galen. And um, and then I have Allison Galen author on Facebook. Very good. Allison, thank you so much for stopping by on Corking Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you so much, Mike. This has been so much fun. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.